First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. In the story Louise shared with us, the little boy and his Nana go directly from their church to the soup kitchen. She still has her hat and her purse and her gloves. He's still in his Sunday clothes, dreaming of playing outside, but they get right on the bus. It is a direct connection. Their Sunday, from the pew to the bus ride with all the downtown travelers to the soup kitchen where they serve, where some of their fellow travelers are headed to, to eat as guests, Their Sunday is one continuous celebration, one continuous offering, one continuous discovery of what it means to be a person, a decent, grateful, dignified person. A hundred years ago, W.E.B. Du Bois, American scholar, historian, activist, founder of the NAACP, wrote a piece that began, these are the things on which people think who live of their own selves and the dwelling place of their parents, of their neighbors, of work and service, of rule and reason and women and children, of beauty and death and war. These are the things he said on which people think who live, people who are alive and know they're alive, who choose to live not only a material transactional life, but a transcendent life, spiritual, ethical, grateful, wide awake life, a life of integrity with head and heart and hands, all joined to needs and dreams beyond one's own. They are the very things that you gather in your space to think about and speak and sing and pray about every Sunday morning. In the words of Du Bois, you are there thinking on your own souls, and the dwelling places of your parents and their parents all the way back, your own history and the history of this church, the history back beyond memory, back to where all stories meet, our common human ground. We think of our neighbors, said Du Bois, however generously or narrowly you want to construe your neighborhood, who gets to sit at your welcome table? Who decides? Who's excluded? from the circle on purpose or unwittingly, and who decides? We think of our neighbors, he said, and our work, the privilege of service, the imperative of life's lives spent out in love, and rule and reason and women and children, whomever now may be among the least of these, the oppressed, the invisible, those without voice, those most endangered or vilified. People who are alive, he said, awake and aware, Think on this stuff and beauty and death and war. It is a serious list. And that we choose to think and mourn and celebrate all this and act on these things together instead of by ourselves alone matters. That we choose to gather instead of living solitary one by one, which we could freely do. The gathering matters. That we've chosen each of us to mingle our own liberty, our own search for truth and meaning with everybody else's in the room at church, despite the risks and the mess of that and the excruciating compromises that gathering imposes on us, that matters. And because we've chosen freely, the bond that holds us each to each and all together, it's not a burden for us. 
It is a holy gift, a blessing, and it's far stronger than any bond imposed by creed or law or fear or force or even by tradition. It is our great covenant to dwell together. It is our call and our delight to join our hands and build within the broken world, within the beautiful creation, to build within the only world we've got, a beloved community, which might help lovingly toward repairing the brokenness and might start reverently to bless the beauty. To be a congregation matters, to consider altogether these concrete and transcendent things. In so many ways, brick and mortar churches, they're so anachronistic in 2023, they're a throwback from the past. Who does this anymore? And in so many ways, They are more crucial in our lives than ever. Years ago, in the depth of wintertime, I traveled with my family to the northernmost, frozenmost tip of Scotland, to some little islands up there. This is the place to go, and February is the time if you would avoid the tourist crowd. The landscape there is dense with sacred sites and standing stones thousands of years old. There are circles built of monoliths so large that ancient people couldn't possibly have transported them and reared them, but they did. And according to the best science they knew, which may have been religion for them, we don't really know. And somehow they arranged them purposefully, often with such precision that a beam of sunlight cast at dawn on the winter solstice still illuminates a burial chamber underground for a single hour once a year, or fills a great ring on a barren plain that's dark all year with light. By evidence of archaeology, We know little of these people, but by the evidence of intuition, we can imagine that they worshiped and wondered in those spaces, the attentiveness with which they marked the cycles of the sun and moon, the tenderness with which a child's skeleton is nestled in a tomb where the solstice light comes down, belie exactly that, attentiveness, tenderness. Some woman wept for that child. Some sister of ours knelt down on that cold stone. And maybe there was playfulness too. Maybe somebody said to someone else at some point, maybe laughing, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if we got 60 stones 20 feet high and we put them all in a great perfect circle out here on this field and then just left them as a haunting mystery for our descendants? And then they did it, left this trace of art and soul for us. Your sacred space on Bell Avenue looks a little different, but I believe you are singing the same old songs that people sang millennia ago. I believe you are asking the same questions that people everywhere have always asked. Where do we come from? What is our place, our rightful place under the stars? What do we love with heart, mind, soul, and strength? What is holy? What is God? What are we afraid of? What can we trust in the face of fear? And to whom, to what are we accountable at the end of the day, at the end of our life, or the end of Sunday when church gets out and we're heading on into Monday? What are we accountable to? What shall we do with the days we are given? These questions, they're the sources of all our worship. They are our core curriculum. They are the purpose of our meeting every Sunday, and they are not new. 
nobody remembers anymore what those sacred sites in the Orkney Islands were really for. But having seen them now and touched the clammy stones that are rough with age and lichen, I think they were built to hold human life, little human lives within the cosmic wheel of stars and time. They were made of earth to bless the earth, the same stuff that we're all made of. It's exactly why your church was built. This place where you sing and cry and bring your babies in for blessing and your beloved dead, and you bring in philosophy and physics and poetry and prophecy and politics. The house itself is not sacred. It's impressive and important. It could stand for 5,000 years if Al Powers has anything to do with it or it could crumble when you're gone. The configuration of stone and steel and glass and wood is not sacred, but what goes on within it is. The stones we saw in Scotland looked so permanent. They were massive. A person feels very young and very small, very mortal, very soft beside them. But some of them had toppled over. Some had sunk into the earth and all had been corroded by the constant wear of wind and salt. They won't last forever. But the sorrow and the gladness that blow among them on the wind out there, the dreams and visions of the people, the courage, the tenderness, those things last. They last in us. They're handed down one way or another, passed along, preserved. The holy questions, these matters of the spirit, they endure. What do you love? What is your place on earth? What will you do with your days? The work of your church is large, not small. It is important, not petty. It is communal, despite the arrogant and at times unholy individualism of Unitarianism. The work of the church is communal. Our life, said E.E. Cummings, a Unitarian, our life is the life of the reaper and the sower. Our prayers are prayers of earth's own clumsily striving and finding and losing and laughing and crying children whose any sadness or joy is our grief and our gladness. He's saying there's no separation, no real separation, despite the stone, the steel, the glass, the wood. There is no barrier distinction between the world inside and the world beyond your walls there, the beautiful broken world because all the sadness and joy and gladness and grief are gathered in that auditorium, in mystery and power, gathered there in silence and struggle and tenderly lifted, sanctified by you in ordinary holiness. Ours is, the poet says, a little church. Around us surges this miracle of unceasing birth and glory and death and resurrection, flaming symbols of hope. What? kind of a space, what kind of house, what kind of covenant, meaning shared promise and intention, could hold all this, all of us? What is a church for in 2023? Music, memory, silence, laughter, tears, words, big window there, framing trees and the city, the capital city and the river and the great masses of people who are not inside with us. And it holds contrition, confession, forgiveness, celebration, inspiration, aspiration, in-breath, out-breath, prayer. The 
house is a temple. It's a respite. It is a construction zone for the spirit, an emergency room for the soul, a harbor of refuge, a port in a storm, a point of departure for the work that begins just as soon as the hymn of valor is over. When we get on the bus or get in our cars or get out of our heads and be about the work of being useful, being kind. It is so important. And I'm saying this now, one month out from the stewardship campaign, to invite you to think about it. What is the point? What is the value of a congregation like First Unitarian in 2023? Why does it matter to you beyond friendships, beyond the force of habit? Why does it matter in your life and in the world that this church even exists? We're not asking you to make a pledge today. That's still four weeks out. But I'm asking you to think on Maybe something like this has happened to you. If I am seated on a plane or in a theater or at a public meeting, and the person next to me in all friendliness turns to me to chat and maybe asks, so what do you do for work? I almost always say, fine, thanks. How are you? And if they kindly ask again, only now a little louder, thinking I didn't quite hear them, I'll say, uh, um, I work for a nonprofit. How about you? And maybe if they press me, if I'm really like right up against the little airplane window, I'll say, <clears throat> I work for a congregation. Because I've learned that words like minister and church are like contraband on airplanes. These are hazardous materials that I prefer to stow in my checked baggage. They can be misconstrued as pointy weapons, these words, or at least very blunt instruments that could do some damage if they're not handled carefully. They need to be purposefully unpacked and disarmed and defined. And unless I have a nonstop flight, there's often just not time for all of this unpacking. And yet, I also know that every time I dodge the question, I have missed an opportunity and I betray you there and I betray our tradition and all of our life and community. And every time that I haven't dodged the question, the conversation has been deep and difficult and beautiful. And almost always the person says, well, interesting. I was raised Jewish or Catholic or Lutheran or atheist, and I live in Denver or Atlanta or Bismarck or London. Do you know if there's a church like yours there? Because what you're saying, I really need it. I need some kind of spiritual community to hold me in these troubled times, in my troubled life, to hold me accountable. I've never heard of this Unitarian, Universal, Unified, whatever you just said it is, but I am definitely going to look into it. Do you have a card? And I never do. But that conversation happens almost every time. It is the practice of gathering, gathering together, also gathering our forces, our inward strength, gathering our wits about us, stitching back together the frayed edges of our tired and distracted days, gathering our faith, our scattered intention, gathering our blessings in our shaking hands, bruised as they may be. Church is the practice of gathering. Forrest Hamer is a poet from North Carolina, and he remembers the sacred exuberance of the Black church of his childhood. He says, Knowing we still needed to dance, 
the man who kept company with men who played the church organ sassy after church was done, and we children gathered still beside him, watching his thin fingers talk the way they dared after the sermon had been made. We lingered to pray for sound because the body waits for sound. We waited for the moment his fingers spoke in all their tongues, listened for the urgent translation into this refrain, we have returned now to a blessed place. Our family is here with us, even the dead and the not born. We are journeying to the source of all wonder. Amen. A church is a gathering unlike any other, because every time we come together at the Sunday hour and other times in the building and beyond it, in the street, in the hospital, at the graveyard, at the demonstration or the Capitol, when we meet for a committee or a drumming circle or a wedding or a work party, weeding and mulching, whenever we gather, there is or ought to be this silent benediction. We have returned to a blessed place. Our family is here with us, even the dead and the not yet born. We are journeying to the source of all wonder. Amen. In a novel, Wendell Berry has this character who's a church custodian, the job that long ago was called the sexton. He knows every inch of the building, and he thinks a lot about its purpose when the space is empty. In the words Louise gave us, he says, I always wished a little that the church was not a church, set off as it was behind its barriers of doctrine and creeds so that all the people of the town might two or three times a week freely have come there and sat down together. One day when I went up there to work, sleepiness overcame me and I lay down on the floor behind the back pew to take a nap. And I saw all the people gathered there who'd ever been there. I saw them as I had seen them from the back pew where I sat as a boy with my uncle, and I saw them as I had seen them from that same back pew on Sunday just last week. I saw them in all times past and in all times to come, all somehow there together in their own time and in all time and no time. The cheerfully working and singing people, the ones who were quiet or reluctant or shy, the weary, the troubled in spirit, the sick, the lame, the desperate, the dying, the little children tucked into the pews beside their elders, the young married couples full of vision, the old men with their dreams, the grieving widows and widowers, the mothers and fathers of children newly dead, the proud, the humble, the attentive, the distracted. I saw them all. I saw the creases crisscrossed on the backs of the men's necks, their work-thickened hands, the Sunday dresses faded with washing. I seemed to love them all. And when I came to myself again, my face was wet with tears. I can't tell you how often I've had that experience. Is church a building or is it a way of life? A web of relationships, a sanctuary on a Sunday morning filled with light and singing, filled with doubt and self-doubt and wonder, where all our vows to each other and to whatever's, whatever's holy are constantly renewed. It is the place where we come to think on our own selves and the dwelling place of our parents and of our neighbors and of work and service and rule and reason and women and children and beauty and death and war. 
Philip Larkin, the English poet, has this piece called Church Going about a cyclist, a bicyclist. He's on a country road and he comes upon an old stone church that's all damp and dark and beautiful. It's dilapidated. They still use it, but maybe not for long. And I think of how much I love old churches, those that are going strong and those abandoned, and also newer churches like the one you're sitting in right now. How much I love that we gather like this on Sunday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, at any time, silent, working, eating, healing, tending, helping, the rhythm and discipline and gratuitous beauty of this thing called church. I love it. And I know it is changing out from under us, not just First Unitarian, not just Unitarian Universalism, but everything church is changing. And I love the changes. It's brave adaptability. And I'm so curious about what it could and will become, what the people who spend Sunday morning rolling around in the we worship space, people who are two and three years old, will long for and need and shape how they'll bless the place and put it to new purposes when they are as old as we all are, which won't be long from now. Philip Larkin says in Church Going, He talks about stepping into an empty sanctuary. It pleases me, he says, to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized, and robed as destinies. And this much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in themselves to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground, which they once heard was proper to grow wise in. Your church is a laughing, loving, lively house. It is a serious house on serious earth, a place proper to grow wise in, proper to grow kind in, grow brave, grow still, grow deep, grow old, grow strong. It is a place to grow our souls, that we might serve this whole world in love.